Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are continuing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our students at WLC. If you're a regular subscriber, thanks for listening in. We appreciate it. Um, Today we have gotten to our second to last lesson in uh, Theology 105, which is our uh, introduction to scripture. We go through the whole Bible in a semester and we kind of got a hodgepodge uh, uh, one at the end of the semester here. And so the title is uh, eschatology, ecclesiology, the two kingdoms, first and second Thessalonians, and Revelation. It's quite an ambitious thing, but uh, quite frankly, we're not going to touch much on on Revelation. The students have read a section of it, and they've read first and second Thessalonians, and so we're just going to highlight some of the things uh, to point out in their reading today. So. <clears throat> Let's start with uh, the church at Thessalonica. There's two uh, letters that St. Paul writes to uh, these Christians there. One of the issues in Thessalonica is um, uh, kind of end times things. So uh, what happens when a Christian dies, right? Uh, What happens when uh, we look forward to Jesus coming? When is he going to come? How are we going to know he's going to come? All those kinds of things. And so... um, when we, I'd like to take a broader picture than of what we normally call eschatology. Eschatology, just from the Greek eschaton, which means the end. So it's, this is the story of the end times. And we define the end times as post-Pentecost, really, post-ascension and Pentecost till the end. So uh, the study of the church, uh, what's going to happen to the church? When is God going to come? What about heaven? What about hell? What about after this life? What about the resurrection of the dead? All of these kinds of concerns. So Thessalonica, um, one of the things that, again, they're they're, they're dealing with is what happens when someone dies. And so we don't need to get into all the details of the the problems with uh, the Thessalonian Christians or their questions. But maybe, Wade, I'll I'll kick it to you. And and, uh, what happens to the soul? Um, Is it we're just falling asleep? Uh, What what happens when a Christian dies? Yeah, uh, the Bible doesn't doesn't tell us for sure. I mean, uh, Solomon says the the spirit goes to be with the God who made it. Um, We in Revelation hear of those who have died before us saying, How long, O Lord? Um, The New Testament, though, also does talk of falling asleep in Christ. Paul with the Thessalonians, right, says those who have fallen asleep before us, um, you know, aren't going to not be saved with us. But... uh, as far as uh, you know, the exact conditions, the Bible is not clear. Other than to uh, uh, the picture is definitely that uh, they have entered their their Sabbath rest. Um, yeah, I don't. I, you know, there's not one concrete picture. Uh, and even um, when we talk about the the souls in heaven, we we recognize that uh, the complete fulfillment of God's promise is still yet coming. Uh, they await with us the resurrection of the living and the dead to be body and soul in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, as God has, has promised to to work it. I don't know if that's a good answer, Mike. But. Sure. I mean, I, again, we could we could lose ourselves in some of the details here, but I don't want to do that. That's that's for a different class period. Um, how how should a Christian wait then? I mean, if 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 God is going to come and there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. Um, both, both body, <clears throat> both body and soul. Um, this is obviously a big event. So, how should a Christian wait? Does he give us a time when he's going to come? That kind of stuff. 
Well, sure. It says it will come like a thief in the night. Uh, according to his humanity, he even says he doesn't know the day or the hour, of course. As God, he does. Um, I always like to use the story that's probably apocryphal about Luther because I've never been able to find the exact passage. <clears throat> um, but uh, I think it's, is it Eisleben or Eisenach has it um, inscribed in stone, so it must be true, right, that uh, Luther said, uh, if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? And he supposedly said, I will plant a tree. Um, we don't leave, We don't live a life um, in fear of Christ's return. We know for us Christ's return will be a good thing. And we also don't live a life despising this life. Um, we recognize that this life itself is, is gift too. Uh, you know, we, with the psalmist, we say this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So so we live this life. We carry out our vocations. Um, we enjoy the gifts God gives us for, for what they are. Um, but we also don't live it as if this is the life, the utopia uh, to come. And so we, tr we try to strike that balance between the two. Um, and so we can quite literally say with Paul in Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's a, a freedom that we have uh, through the gospel. So when we think about <clears throat> this end time coming here, and uh, this is where we're going to get a little bit into, into revelation. God does not tell us the exact time he's going to come in a thief in the night. And, and the picture there is you, you don't expect it. Like if you know the thief's coming, you're out there with the baseball bat in your front porch. Right. Um, and you, you should be prepared for that. Um, I've always found it found it very, very um, comforting that God doesn't tell us things in the future, especially the last day. And by the way, um, he doesn't, even the son doesn't know, right? Only the father knows. So Jesus himself says, I have not been given that knowledge. And so that's a part of his humiliation in the sense that there are certain, an all-knowing God can not use his full powers of, of, uh, of omniscience in this particular instance. Just think how awful it would be if you knew that six months from now that would be the end of the end end of the world. So any, by the way, anybody, you hear about somebody who says the end of the world's going to come in twenty twenty four. Plan your wedding that year, right? You know it's not going to come uh, if someone predicts it in that way. Um, <clears throat> but just think about how awful it would be, right? What would you do with six months uh, to live? Well, you you probably want to, you probably stop working. You probably, and I think that's where supposedly Luther probably didn't say it, but, you know, plant your tree, keep working, right? right? Um, <clears throat> but, you know, like, oh, I would I would love to go to Australia. Well, who's going to take you to Australia? What pilot's going to be like, yeah, I'm working, <laughs> right? Uh, what's going to be open? What What is going to happen? It would be mass chaos. It would be awful. And It'd so, be a good movie, Mike. Yeah, it would be a very good movie. Uh, maybe are living it right now. Yeah. But, uh, just be just be an awful thing for God to say, here's when I'm going to come. And yet there are signs, right? We're going to have uh, wars and famine, uh, natural tragedies and disasters and stuff like that. But we dare not say, oh, this tragedy or this pestilence or this pandemic then is, that's what needs to happen. And now God is going to come. No, it's just a general uh, situation where things aren't going to be right. And things are maybe going to get worse in circum certain circumstances before God is going, going to come. Now, in Revelation, 
and we remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. So if you remember, students, when we talked about hermeneutics, we said uh, uh, hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. How do we look at the Bible? And we need to be careful when we look at the, uh, a certain text, we have to ask ourselves, is this poetry? Is it history? Is it apocalyptic? Is it an apocalyptic genre type thing? And that helps us interpret things. And so if we're looking at 1 Samuel, or first kings. This is history, and so we take it as we read a history book. But when we hear uh, Jesus speak in parables, we understand that he's not literally a gate, for instance. He's using an analogy there, or uh, faith is not actually a mustard seed. He's using a picture there to, to give us a spiritual truth. And so when we go into Revelation, we understand that this is an apocalyptic genre type thing. So the picture there is John the Evangelist, right? So a disciple of Jesus who wrote John's Gospel, of course, and then for the letters 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. <clears throat> but he was also given uh, a revelation um, from Jesus, uh, kind of like a trance type of situation. Not really quite a dream, but he was put into a trance. And by the way, the, the Greek word for revelation is apocalypse. Apocalypse, and so apocalypse actually, in its meaning, means a revealing and unveiling. Think about a uh, a curtains being drawn away, and now you see something on a stage. Because revelation had to do with the last times of of our time here on earth, and then uh, you know heaven and hell, and the great cosmic battle between Christ and the devil. Um, that word apocalypse then became something or revealing of the end time. So apocalyptic uh, is, a, is a certain, when I say apocalyptic literature, I mean this is an unveiling of a mysterious thing in a, in a, in, in a poetic, symbolic way. But apocalypse becomes the meaning end times because of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to St. John. So St. John was on the island of Patmos and he was given, he was put into a trance and given these visions. And a lot of it had to do with worship, right? The worship of heaven and how that, uh, that would, would occur. And so you have uh, Jesus at the center. Uh, you have angels singing. You have all of these kinds of things. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, one of my favorites is like, you know, uh, uh, John. John is talking to the elders, the, the picture of, of, of Christians in heaven. And, and uh, he says, uh, the elders say, who are these people that kind of keep popping up, right? And uh, you know who they are. I and love when students put that on a test because I'll sometimes joke about that in class. And then I'll have a student who doesn't know an answer and he'll write, sir, you know. <laughs> That's great. You should give credit for that. I sometimes do. <laughs> and, uh, and these are the ones that come from the Great Tribulation. So down here on earth, this tribulation, this, we call it the church militant fighting, and then they become the church triumphant, and it's from every tribe, right? Uh, this sounds kind of uh, uh, flippant or maybe even racist, but uh, I, I'll say in class sometimes, I'm like, just so you know, heaven's going to be very dark. And what I mean by that is if you look at the numbers, not going to be, you know, white people are going to probably be outnumbered. In heaven, right? And I mean that as a, a diverse thing, as a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing that there's going to be from every tribe and every nation, there's going to be this beautiful uh, 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 picture of heaven uh, from all over, all over the, the history of the world. And so uh, just a beautiful picture of heaven there. 
But when we're talking about this, he's talking about it in imagery. And so he talks about this tribulation as a thousand year period. It's called the millennium. So not million, but, but a thousand in Latin. And uh, this thousand year period is the, the time between Pentecost and Christ's return and in heaven. And it is seen as a picture of God's rule, a millennial rule, but also a time of great tribulation. And so well, how can that be? Well, God rules all things. He has already won the victory. And so we are in the already, but the not yet, right? We don't have the full benefits of that. And remember, heaven, you know, not really in time and space in the way that we think about it now. And so this picture of this thousand year period is when I, I like to think of the devil has his sway, um, but he's like a bulldog uh, on uh, chained to a fence. Like he is certainly limited. He's already defeated, right? And so the picture in Revelation is the great beast and all this kind of stuff. And the imagery would have been uh, very uh, applicable to to John and the people that he was serving and writing, even though he was uh, exiled on the island of Patmos. Um, because at this time, you know, if you're in, in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, you are under the rule of the, the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire had started to become a little bit more uh, violent, and uh, the persecution ramped up against Christians. And so the color red, you can think of the, the, the red capes of the Roman soldiers, right, the great beast. And he's not saying Rome is the great beast. It's a picture of the devil. But it would have been imagery that, that would have been very relatable to Christians and, and Jews alike, and really everybody uh, living in, uh, in the Roman Empire that were, that were not uh, Roman citizens. So he uses this picture of this millennial, this time period. And so uh, the vast majority of the history of the church and, and Lutherans in particular, Roman Catholics, uh, uh, are going to be what we call amillennialists. And they don't be, that, that just says that the millennium is a picture. It's not to be literally taken as a thousand-year period. <clears throat> but there are other Christians who will like to play with that and try to take this as somewhat literal or completely literal. And so we may have a, a few versions of this. One, one is a ver, virgin that it's a, a premillennialism, postmillennialism, and a, a tribulational millennialism. I'm getting my names mixed up. I usually have a PowerPoint picture in front of this that has, a, has all my names there. But it basically goes like this. You have amillennialism that this is just a symbol of this thousand-year period. Trial and tribulation for the church militant, victory for the church triumphant. Others will talk about how um, Jesus is going to, there's going to be a tribulation. Then Jesus is going to come. Then there's going to be a thousand year reign where Christians are going to kick butt. Right? So notice the, the urge for a utopia here on earth. The urge for a millennial rule here on earth for Christians. Right? And then God is going to uh, take people to heaven. Uh, another version of this would be that God is going to come secretly. He's going to rapture people up into heaven, the Christians. Then there will be this thousand-year reign, and then that the time will, will, will eventually come. Another version of this is that there is going to be um, 
there's going to be a thousand years that start. We don't, cr we don't quite really know when it's going to start, but if we could figure it out, we could, we could uh, uh, figure out when the, the final end is going to come. Like if it starts in 2020, then we know it's going to be a thousand years from there. Um, so each of these takes something literal that shouldn't be taken literally, right? They don't, they don't have that genre. Ironically, these are often Christians who will take other places, not literally, like this is my body, this is my blood, when that, that language is specifically like last will and testament language, right? So I'll tell to my students like this, uh, you know, in different genres, if I say, if I'm writing a love letter to my, to my, to my uh, wife, um, <clears throat> that's a different language than I'm writing my last will and testament. So if I say, I, Michael Berg of Sound, Mind, and Body of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, do declare my love to you, uh, Amanda Lynn Nelson, uh, also of Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, that wouldn't be a very good love letter. If I write my will like this, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm dead now, this is what you should do, that would be bad legal language. So when Jesus is giving his last will and testament, if he's saying, do this in remembrance of me, it's, it's more akin to very specific legal language. He wouldn't be talking in poetry like, oh, I'm sort of like bread. I'm sort of like wine. Um, but in Revelation, he's, he's doing that. And so ironically, some people will, will mix that up and in places where you should be taking stuff literally, take it symbolically, and then when you should take it symbolically, uh, use it literally. So uh, the classic example is Jehovah's Witnesses, who in um, Revelation we'll see uh, this, the, the church being equated with the number 144,000. Well, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. We talked about God loving those numbers. And then the multiples of 12 then are going to be a symbol of the church. And so he's not saying there's only going to be 144,000 in heaven, which is problematic, of course, for Jehovah's Witnesses, because there's more than 144,000 of them, but they get around that by saying it's, this is like a kind of the elite, a specific uh, cast of, of, of Christians. So we got to be very careful about that. Now, this is, this is extremely important for a geopolitical situation because some Christians believe that, as we talked about in Romans, that uh, that uh, the Jews all need to uh, be converted and or the specific land of Palestine, the promised land, needs to be under Jewish control before God is going to come. And so there are literally churches that give money to this political cause. Um, and that, that changes our geopolitics there, that, that America is pro-Palestinian, not just because it is the lone democracy in the Middle East. I think that's probably good enough to be pro-Israel to, to a certain extent, trying not to make a political statement here. Um, but it's also because of an evangelical Christian viewpoint that that specific land needs to be under control. Now, this is very dangerous because notice what's happening is that Christians are trying to enhance God's return instead of letting it be, just be prepared. And when he comes, he comes. Uh, this is very interesting when we talk about how we view uh, religions as a whole in our modern world and how some people um, outside of the religious establishment tend to look at, at religion. And so uh, kind of a, a trope, or not a trope, but a, a common way of thinking about religion is religion can cause a lot of problems. And the reason it causes a lot of problems is because you have fundamentalists. So fundamental, those are the people who actually believe the stuff that's said, right? And so there, if you would just, if you would just 
realize that this is just all kind of a myth and it's just kind of sort of a soft kind of thing. It's opinion. It doesn't really matter. Can't we all get along? All religions are the same kind of thing. And if you just stopped actually believing what your preachers and your sacred text said, then there wouldn't be any war in the world, which of course the 20th century disproves because atheists can fight too. Um, but the problem is really not fundamentalists, right? Like people on the fringes, so to speak. It's a very particular thing. So let, let me back up and say this. The problem is not people who are far right or far left, although that, that can be true in politics. That's not really true with religion because you can have people on far right or far left who are pacifists, right? The problem is a very specific strain that can be found in every religion and that is could be called millennialism. It could be a, called apocalyptic type of strain. It's the idea that a specific religious group, and this is true of every religion, that a specific strain in their religion believes that they can enhance the end of the world. So if we uh, make everybody Islamic, put under Sharia law, or if we get all the Jews to be converted to Christianity, or if we hold on to um, the promised land. In each religion, there's a strain that says, if we just do this here on earth, then God will be compelled to end it and come by and either bring a utopia down here on earth or to bring about some sort of uh, end of the world or whatever. So it's a specific theological problem that is the that is the impulse then to religious wars usually so it, you got to be you got to navigate this a little bit better and just don't take the common sort of way of looking at that funda fundamentalism is the problem fundamentals are good right in basketball and music and uh, other sports right fundamentals are good um, that's not the problem the problem is a specific type of theology okay that gets us into a, a uh, eschatology a little bit more. I want to end the eschatological uh, section with one thing, Wade, and that is the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. And I think you probably have a better handle on this than me. So I'm going to ask you, who is the Antichrist? What is, what is this thing called the man of lawlessness? How specific can we get about that? <coughs> yeah. The historical Lutheran position and the confessional position um, is tied to the small called articles where uh, Luther says, uh, Papa Wehrman to Christa Mest, uh, ties the Antichrist with being the Roman papacy. Um, probably one of the more awkward conversations for pastors to have with people when, they, when uh, questions arise about it. But what we do know from Paul's epistles when this is brought up is it will be, and from John's epistles, uh, it'll be someone who is within the church, who sets himself up in the temple of God, who exalts himself above God. Um, and so while many will try to say, well, the Antichrist was Hitler or Stalin or, or you pick it, um, this will be something that comes out of the church. The traditional Lutheran connection then is with the papacy. This doesn't mean um, every pope goes to hell and you know has devil horns under their, their pope hat. <clears throat> but the office of the papacy as it exists um, does those things um, for, from our view that uh, the Bible says the Antichrist will do. Namely, it's set up in the church. It uh, sets itself up above Scripture. 
uh, claims to be the vicar of, of Christ on earth, so to speak, uh, to to not only speak for God as, as any preacher does, but to uh, to be, in, in a sense, God's representative on earth that goes beyond what uh, Protestants would consider um, <clears throat> normal ministry. So yeah. uh, in short, it, we, we uh, would say in Lutheran circles, uh, confessional Lutheran circles, those that accept the small cause articles, that it's the office of the papacy. Yeah. So now don't freak out if you're Roman Catholic here. Uh, we're not saying every Catholic person, What? that's not what we're saying. And we got to play with the word anti a little bit there in Greek. And it's uh, not even saying that popes can't go to heaven. Right. Uh, we're talking about when we took take the Greek word anti, um, it can depends on the ending of the, the next word that, that's connected to that prefix. Um, at one, it could be against, right? So, uh, you know, if I'm anti-Donald Trump, I'm against Donald Trump kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> but there's another uh, uh, meaning to that, and that is in the place of. So think vicarious or vicar. So vicarious is if, if I'm trying to live through my, my children because I wasn't a very good athlete, so I really push them to be good athletes. And then when they're, you know, in high school or college playing athletics, I'm living through them there. I'm living vicariously through them. So anti can mean in the place of, and so, so notice that the Pope says, I'm the vicar. I'm in place of Christ and going so far as to say, I, I speak and at the same level of scripture in a certain sense, right? Like I can, I can, the the doctrine of a papal infallibility. Yeah. So the, the, when the Pope speaks F ex cathedra, from the seat of St. Peter um, on faith or morals, that he yeah. expects that to be um, as authoritative as, as Scripture itself. Right. So the, the, the papacy is saying, I'm in the place of Christ here, like literally calls himself that, and also says I speak for Christ in certain, with authority when I speak officially there. Um, so and, uh, and makes laws. That's another thing that the New Testament says, right? We'll make laws um, beyond which God has given. And notice the Antichrist... Specifically, and we can talk about antichrists, anybody against Christ, but specifically this one who stands up inside the church. So Osama bin Laden is not the antichrist because he's not Christian. He's not putting himself up in the church as an authoritative figure who's replacing, replacing Aaron Rodgers, as much as it pains me, he's not the antichrist. <laughs> not, not the antichrist. So uh, just... Don't, don't freak out about it, but you should know this historically. And that there is going to be inside the church, there's going to be people finally working against God's grace and saying, you get, you got to be saved because you do things. And that's, that, that is the, the problem there. All right. So for students, if you, if you like pull to like page 44 and, and following, what I do is kind of give you some of the stuff from Revelation. I want you to take this, put this in the back of your Bible. There's a little chart there on what, the, what do the numbers mean. Uh, we already went through the number 12. Um, the number 10 and 3 and 3 and a half and 4 and 6 also have, have pictures there. You know 6 is the 1 less than 7, which is this number of completeness uh, uh, because it's the Trinity plus uh, the, the four points of the, the compass, uh, the world. 6 would be 1 less and so that becomes the number of the beast, the number it's of really the devil. It's really mocking the devil. It's yeah. not like a, a name the devil would want. <laughs> it's yeah. a, it's kind of saying you can never be God. Yeah, you always come up short. And like three and a half is, uh, you know, half of, of that completeness. So it, it means uh, kind of a, a incompleteness or or, uh, or something that's complete, that is definitely limited or whatever. And so I, I just give that to you. We're not going to test you on that symbols in Revelation. I give you a kind of a summary of Revela Revelation uh, 
divide it into seven parts and stuff like that. So that's more just helpful for you in, in, in the world kind of, uh, or in your life. And when you, when you uh, choose to read revelation in your, in your Bible reading, um, I also, uh, did some eschatological things, the signs of the end on page 47, the millennium and on page 48, give you a better description of uh, some of those post-tribulational, pre-tribulational, post-millennialism, amillennialism. You can look those over. Uh, um, I'm not necessarily saying you have to have those memorized. Let's, let's switch gears a little bit and, and, and with ecclesiology and the two kingdom theology. So ecclesiology is just the study of the church. Uh, ecclesia is just a word for, you can see how it's related to the Spanish word for church. Think congregation or gathering, the assembly kind of thing. So the church is a gathering, but who is the church or what is the church? And so we often talk about the church uh, in the sense of a invisible or a visible sense. And probably it's better with visible and hidden. I'll get to that in a little bit, but it's easy to do visible and invisible because they're exact uh, polar opposites. So we'll, we'll talk about that way. The invisible church is something I can't draw a line around. So this is of the heart. The kingdom of, is, of God is not something you can see. It, it, it is defined by faith. And so I can't really, I can, I can see, I can see results of faith. But I can't look into someone's heart, and quite frankly, I'm the only one that I know that's going to be in heaven, unless you, 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 the Bible has told me that, because I can't see into your heart. I can make a pretty darn good conclusion by your confession, your outward what you say, and in certain limited expect how you act. Um, but um, I can't really see that, and so we define the church as all believers everywhere of all time. Don't care about your ethnicity. Don't care if you're Mother Teresa or somebody who's struggling with sin. Don't care about what denomination you are in. If you're Roman Catholic, you're Methodist or Lutheran. If you trust that Jesus is your Savior, you don't trust yourself. You take God at his word, you're in. You're in this circle. Um, and that's an invisible thing to me. But there are also visible churches. So I'm, I, I don't just think of like, you know, St. Mary's down the road or, uh, you know, the 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 church that's on the corner of first Avenue and 10th street. Um, but denominations, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, Roman Catholic, whatever list them all. If you want, those are visible churches. I can see them. Uh, I can, I can see their, the number, the, the, their roster list of the, the people that are members of that church. They have a building, they have a structure. I can see that those are visible churches. Now, if we draw a big circle, and that circle is the invisible church, all believers everywhere of all time, and then within that circle, I draw these visible circles, not just always in that big circle, but, but a little bit of that circle is outside the big circle, right? So around the big circle, I'm drawing these other circles, and a little portion of them is outside the big circle, and then most of it's inside the big circle. That's a way of describing the church. So the visible churches, your local Lutheran church, that is a circle. I would like to think that most of the people that are members of that local congregation, that physical, visible thing, are also true believers in Jesus Christ and therefore part of the Christian church. But I'm not so ignorant to think that there aren't some people whose, whose names are on the church rolls or even go to church and, and function in that church that they actually in their heart don't believe. So those would be people that are outside the true church, the invisible hidden church, 
but are members of that church. So that's that little sliver that's on the outside looking in. And uh, we call, we have a technical name for them called hypocrites. And I don't mean a hypocrite because they live their life one way and, and, and speak a different way. What I mean is that they portray themselves as believers in Jesus Christ, maybe even go through the motions, but in their heart don't actually believe. So they go to church because there's, it's cultural or because they have to or because it gives them some sort of feeling or a moral guide or whatever. But they actually don't trust Jesus. They trust themselves. They say, God, judge me for, by law. I'm righteous by law, the, the, the wrong system to be in. So we got to be careful that just because I belong to a church or I call myself Christian, that, that doesn't mean squat. It is actually what you believe. And so the church is hidden to us. I think that's a better way to think about it than invisible because uh, the church is still visible, right? Like I can see that. I can see the marks of the church. That's where preaching is, where Holy Communion is, where there's suffering often, a confession that's made. But it's hidden to me. The true reality is hidden to me. I can't quite see into the heart that's hidden to me. So this would be the visible and then the hidden church. So visible churches, we think of denominations, but the the hidden, or if you prefer, invisible church is all believers everywhere of all time. Okay, we already talked about the church militant, the church triumphant, those still fighting here on earth, struggling, and those already in heaven, the triumphant one. Now let's briefly call, uh, discuss what we call two kingdom theology. So God rules all, and we've already mentioned that, um, and that means everything he rules everything. He makes a claim on everything from uh, from the United States Senate all the way down to the Sunday school at a local church. But we think about rightfully that God has two realms or two kingdoms. So yes, he rules all, but there's two kingdoms. In one kingdom, the kingdom of the left hand is how he rules in the world. Think through governments, through law through lawyers, through all that kind of stuff, the secular realm, uh, think almost the body, the physical. Then he has the kingdom of his right hand, the kingdom of the right, which is how he rules spiritually. So this is the church. This is how he rules through faith. And here, the means by which he rules is the word and the sacraments, Holy Communion, Baptism, Absolution. So the kingdom of the left hand, God rules through governments. And that government may not be Christian. In fact, vast history of the world, they're not going to be Christian. So St. Paul says in Romans 13, you owe honor and respect and taxes to the Roman Empire, even though the Roman Empire was not Christian and even at times hostile to Christianity. Um, and in this, they rule the body. They are, and they have their authority from God, whether they know it or not. And so they rule to punish the evildoer and to reward those that do well. So tax breaks for those who maybe are, are charitable organizations, uh, throwing into jail the murderer and the cheating, uh, those, those kinds of things. And it is God who gives them their authority. They don't carry it out perfectly, neither is it carried out perfectly in the church. But this is God's rule in the physical world through governments. God rules in the right-hand kingdom when he rules through the word of God. 
And here, this is about grace. This is about heaven. This is about conscience. This is about uh, uh, what you believe. And so notice that the left-hand kingdom cannot rule, even though it might try, cannot rule the conscience, cannot rule the thought, cannot rule the soul, can only rule the body. And when it tries to rule thoughts and patterns uh, of conscience, then it becomes totalitarian. Think about the totality of the body, body and soul. Totality of the person, I should say, body and soul. A totalitarian government tries to say, you're not allowed to believe that. You're not allowed to think that. I'm trying to get into the conscience. And it can't. As much as it tries, it can't. And it should limit itself. So we do have a doctrine of limited government to a certain extent. It limits itself to the secular realm. In the same way, the kingdom of the right should not be doing laws. So, and, and this seems obvious to us in America that the church should, that the, the local pastor should not also be the judge and the police officer in a small town. Um, but there are times in the history of the Christian church when the church did act that way, the church did have an army, and a lot of places it almost was compelled to because the secular government was so weak and so powerless that the church was the strongest thing going, and so it acted as a, uh, a, as a judiciary. Now, this was true in ancient Israel, which would have called a theocracy, right? That you can think of Samuel being a judge and a prophet. But this is not really the way that we do it in the New Testament, and thankfully so, because just think about if the right-hand kingdom started to do left-hand kingdom stuff. That would mean that the church would have to send people to jail when the church is supposed to be forgiving. And so the gospel gets lost into, and the law dominates. Or it would be complete anarchy because the church would just forgive everybody's debts. Like, you don't pay taxes, okay, we forgive you. Oh, you murdered somebody, we still love you, right? So just as the left-hand kingdom can't do the spiritual thing and should limit itself that way, the church needs to limit itself. It cannot do the body law stuff because if it does, it's a mixture of law and gospel and that becomes very problematic and therefore there would be uh, the gospel almost always is not going to predominate because the law is just too enticing for people. Uh, to have that power, power and authority is just going to be too enticing even for the church, even though it should know better. So those are the two kingdoms. And you think about the two kingdom theology. Those things overlap. A classic example of overlapping would be marriage. So uh, the state has an uh, interest in marriage and in family for the good of society. And so it makes rules and says cousins can't be married. You have to be a certain age before you can consent to be, be being married. Um, but the church has something to say about the estate of marriage. Too. The, the marriage does not come from the government. Government didn't come up with marriage. God did. And so it is right that, uh, that, the, that the pastor has something to say about marriage. And so in our situation in America, um, uh, uh, pastors have the, the right to uh, marry people. But that right does not just come from the position of being a pastor in the church, but literally from the state. And so the state gives the authority to the pastor to actually do the marriage and sign the marriage certificate. It's not the case everywhere in the world, but it is in America. So there are things where they overlap, the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom, and rightfully so, 
But if you mix the two, if the church starts doing the state's business or the state state starts doing the church's business, you are going to mix law and gospel and you're either going to have anarchy or you're going to have a totalitarian raid. In a totalitarian reign where the state, who's over the body, starts to get into the conscience, what you're supposed to believe and think. That's why we have protections for free speech in America. Or if the right-hand kingdom, the church, starts doing the church's business, the law over takes over the gospel, or it becomes anarchy because uh, the church cannot uh, cannot uh, the church, if it forgives everything, will not be able to have. R- rule uh, law and order in in the in the right way so i don't know i think that's probably good enough for us unless you want to mention anything way to no i mean i think if if we're sticking to a survey you hit on stuff well and at this point i would just take us down rabbit holes yeah and that's okay but you can and will if you take a johnson class later in your career here at wlc right this is just a survey just to give you some uh uh uh, primary elementary uh, stuff and then you're going to go down to all those questions you probably are already thinking because you guys are smart smart students um, with that said thanks for listening we're almost done with the semester with this uh, online stuff and we hopefully in the fall we'll get back and it'll be nice and normal we can be and we can see each other face to face until then let the bird fly